the story begins about the middle of last year when the NTU began negotiations with Curtin um, Senior Management. And very quickly in that process, we were dismayed that while um, Curtin's you know, management bargaining team were more than happy to meet up at every scheduled meeting, and they were clearly abiding by um, you know, their obligations under the Fair Work Act, we weren't seeing much progress in bargaining. Uh, management had undertaken quite an ambitious roadshow prior to negotiations, beginning touring the campus, talking to staff and getting a sense of what the issues were. And in the early days, it seemed like the union and management were on the same page, uh, the same page rather. So um, staff were really concerned about pay increases not matching the cost of living, particularly casual staff, low-paid admin staff and, um, you know, sort of junior academics. They were particularly concerned about pay increases not really matching um, the cost of living in Perth. Job insecurity was another huge issue because Curtin, like most universities, employs um, this army of, of casual staff who have you know, no sick pay uh, and no, no job security whatsoever. But there was also, um, I think, a commitment from both sides. We wanted to improve things for First Nations staff at Curtin University. Um, First Nations staff do a tremendous job, uh, really make Curtin a unique place to study at. Um, but, you know, sadly, we don't really have enough First Nations staff. So the staff we do have do a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, and, we, and we also wanted to make sure that workloads got addressed as well because staff for year after year had said that they were feeling burnout, particularly since COVID when there's been a necessity to change the way that we teach you know, relatively quickly. So even though we started on the same page, after a few months it became clear that management didn't really have any intentions of wanting to meaningfully tackle these problems and instead were largely um, you know, looking to, to get an agreement together that if anything would lock a lot of those problems in for, you know, at least another four years. And so when we reached the end of last year, um, there was a little bit of a stalemate, but the NTU was fairly sure that management had no real intention of um, changing its position and so that they were going to go to, to what is called a non-union ballot. So for, for your listeners who aren't aware, a non-union ballot um, just refers to the act of putting a vote out to all staff, um, whether they're union members or non-union members, um, and, and ignoring the fact that the union does not endorse the deal. Mm. And so what you saw um, in the beginning of this year was a campaign emerging where management was attempting to convince staff that the deal they were offering was you know, sustainable and reasonable, and the union attempting to convince uh, uh, staff, whether they're you know, union members or not, that this is an agreement that would have, as I said, uh, ratified and locked in a lot of the systemic problems around burnout, um, casualisation, poor poor pay increases, um, and, and really unambitious employment targets for our First Nations staff. Yes, certainly, Francis, and I, I guess, you know, as a result, um, the NTU did take uh, action. Um, can you tell us about the, the campaign um, at from that point, from when the, the non-union ballot um, took place? Because I think it's, it's quite remarkable, and, and particularly given the NTU has really had uh, quite a massive win in this regard. Um, and I believe, you know, there was, you know, some protected industrial action proposed and, and other activities by the NTU. Uh, what did the union do in this circumstance? And, you know, why do you think it was effective? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think we committed ourselves to, in some ways, an old fashioned ground campaign. And in some ways, that, that was tricky because at that time of the year there's not 
um, a ton of staff on campus. This is before the semester has begun. But a curtain our philosophy when it comes to campaigning and organising is always to turn to our membership as our greatest strength. Um, you know, like a lot of um, unions these days, we, we do have much lower density than we would like, but we do have at Curtin a really fantastic um, activist culture. I, I think that has been rejuvenated out of the COVID years. Um, it may have been the case that before COVID, Curtin was a slightly more um, conservative or passive branch, but I think the um, the the intensification to the labour process, just just people feeling that they're being worked more and more and more, and the increased precarity that people are feeling, I think has really motivated a lot of our members to um, be more engaged in campaigning and organising. That meant for us speaking to as many non-members as we could about why we felt Curtin's deal was not adequate. Um, Curtin was essentially offering a 2.2% um, annualised pay offer um, over a number of years, and that's when inflation was still sitting at, you know, getting close to around 8% in WA. That's also off the back of our existing agreement that offered some pretty woeful um, pay increases. And I know some listeners would rightly say, well, you know, hold on, professors, they earn pretty good money, why are they worrying so much about pay? But really our concern, again, uh, a lot of our um, professional staff, a lot of our admin staff, our casual staff, and our um, you know, sort of emerging academics or, or early career academics, they're much lower on the pay scale. And they're reporting to us that they're really, um, they're really suffering right now. Um, you know, we have staff talking about very, very difficult rent increases or increases to their mortgages that are putting pressure on them. And this also comes at a time when senior managers, um, some of which are on you know, almost half a million dollars a year, had already given themselves um, um, a pay increase, uh, quote unquote, because of the cost of living pressures um, that were affecting um, everybody in WA. So for us, this really became a campaign about convincing staff that, that um, it was not reasonable to view bargaining as um, resolved, um, to see negotiations as having run their course, when there were so many you know, fundamental and substantive issues facing uh, Curtin University and, and these are issues that, that you know most universities in the sector face and I think because of the experience coming out of COVID even those staff who are not yet members of the union were really receptive to our messaging they wanted to talk to us they wanted to um, seek out information from our members and our delegates and our activists and ultimately I think uh, that's how we were able to you know get a resounding no vote at Curtin. Mm. And where does that leave, uh, you know, Curtin staff and NTU members now? I, I imagine it's sort of back to the bargaining table, so to speak. Does that mean, you know, the union will now attempt to sort of engage in further bargaining with management? Well, frustratingly, Curtin staff have waited over 600 days now for a pay increase. We're the only public university in WA where a pay increase has been withheld from staff while bargaining is occurring. So even though universities like ECU and UWA and Murdoch um, are actually not as far into bargaining as Kurt is, we started earlier than they did, um, all those university administrations felt it's necessary to give staff um, a pay increase now because of the cost of living uh, pressures. Curtin senior executive um, have uh, decided not to give that pay increase 
And when we've confronted them um, at the bargaining table about this, they've been quite open that, that this is just a tactic they're employing because um, they are in bargaining. So the same senior managers that paid themselves an increase despite being on three, four, or potentially even $500,000 a year are withholding pay from curtain staff um, as leverage. And for that reason, we're not optimistic that curtain senior managers will be coming back to the table anytime soon. Mm. We wrote to them immediately to request that negotiations recommence. We have so far heard um, nothing. It's, it's, it's been, um, you know, a, a week now since um, um, an announcement was made that the non-union ballot was, was unsuccessful for senior management. And so that's why at Curtin we are really stepping up our industrial campaign. Mm. We've already had um, industrial action in the form of interruptions to the normal way we work and the, and the normal systems that we, that we use at Curtin. We've uh, worked from home to disrupt um, orientation week events, something that Curtin staff really did through gritted teeth. I mean, our staff are incredibly empathetic and compassionate. They love their students. The last thing they would ever want to do is, is disrupt anyone's learning. But we've had to take uh, these kinds of steps. And I think in, in the not too um, distant future, we will have to consider work stoppages or strike action. Mm. But we're just not getting the sense management want to come back to the table. We get the sense they want to wait us out mm. and just let the, the pressure of the cost of living, um, um, you know, in their view, I think, force staff to accept a substandard deal. It, it seems absolutely absurd, really, that, you know, now staff have voted no to this ballot and, uh, you know, largely you can imagine on the grounds um, of, you know, what's being offered, but also, you know, simply on the fact that the, the NTU have been, you know, somewhat locked out of the decision and the negotiating, as you've uh, explained there. Uh, obviously, as we've been discussing, there's a huge issue of casualization in the university sector and there's a whole bunch of other uh, you know, factors that really, uh, you know, make universities somewhat of a, a bit of a testing ground when it comes to sort of the neoliberalized, uh, you know, economic model being employed in Australian institutions. Uh, I mean, as you're saying there, you know, industrial action might ramp up. Do you, do you feel like, you know, the members and, and people at Curtin, you know, are, are prepared to get more active and do you see this sort of campaign growing and, and, and perhaps growing even beyond Curtin because while this, you know, might be happening at Curtin now, you know, as, as you mentioned, of course, this is something that, you know, exists across the sector and, and not even just in Western Australia, but of course, across all universities around the country. And that's something we very much saw during during COVID, uh, the impact mm -hmm. of casualization and so forth. Do you, do you think this has the, you know, the, the potential to grow into something bigger that might actually you know you know create a bigger change for university sector workers and for and for students as well because ultimately you know that that's what we're talking about here is, is you know the quality of of education and and you know that that's really tied into it as well so do you think this could you know grow into something bigger um as the campaign grows i think a challenge we'll always have in higher education and it's a similar challenge to see here in other human-centred forms of work, whether it's nursing or, or, or teaching, is that staff are always um, pressured to somehow express uh, uh, or pursue their, their, you know, their legal rights to engage in industrial action, whilst also not um, um, harming you know, students who we all care about so deeply. And, and I do think that that poses some unique challenges for us. That being said, in the last few years, what I've noticed at 
universities across Australia is a realisation that we are facing an existential threat. Um, the, the way that universities have removed enormous amounts of their academic and support staffing, the ways that um, classroom sizes have skyrocketed, the ways that um, we are just struggling to maintain really key staff. Um, um, staff are leaving to other industries where they can get better pay and better conditions. All of these things are threatening the university sector and they're threatening um, what higher education um, um, really means anymore. Um, we saw a recent announcement in WA that there you know, will be a review into um, a proposal to merge the public universities. And I think these kinds of um, proposals, while it seems pretty unpopular in higher education, are coming out of the crises that, that we're seeing around um, particularly uh, casual wage theft, which is affecting a number of universities, but also just the the, um, uh, the sense that we're struggling to deliver the kind of experiences we want for students with the um, kind of working environments that the staff are, are struggling through. So on the one hand, I would say it has to turn into a bigger campaign because it would not be an exaggeration to say the very future of the university, um, in my belief, lies in the hands of um, the NTU and, and its members. I, I just don't see the leadership coming from university managers. And I think that, you know, it's only the goodwill of staff that got us through COVID. It's only the goodwill of staff getting us through ChatGPT and, and the latest sort of, you know, technological revolution happening in the sector. It's just the hard work of staff that, get, that pulls the university through and managers are not doing enough to recognise that hard work and to keep the, the valuable staff that we need. 